You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, For those who may not know me, my name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor of the best church in the city of Louisville, uh, Sojourn Church Carlisle, and I'm definitely honored and privileged to stand before you this morning to continue in our series of Missio Dei. Um, For those who don't know, in Latin, that means the mission of God. This actually be our last Sunday um, going through um, our series. We'll take a break from now, and we'll start a new series next week on the rumors of Jesus, um, looking at uh, the four weeks leading up to Advent. And then we'll pick up this series in February um, after we start a new series in January called All in the Family. So don't want to give too much sneak preview, but uh, if you've been really enjoying this, you might have to put it on pause for a little while until next year in February. You know, in his most excellent book, A.W. Tozer says these words, the knowledge of the holy, he says these words, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So let me ask you a question. What comes into your mind when you think about our God? You know, there's a lot of questions that can come into our mind, but I remember a specific question I was asked to me that really questioned this and was very perplexing for me. The question was as such, how can a good, loving, and gracious God be so mean, cruel, and brutal? This was a question posed to me while serving the students at Princeton University in one of my Bible study classes, and that it was a great and inquisitive question. And honestly, at the time, I didn't have Uh, I had a hard time trying to answer it at the time. I know at our church we say it often because it's true that our view of God will determine our pursuit of him, that our view of God will determine our pursuit of him. Today, I'm going to speak into one of the most misconstrued views of God, namely that the God of the Old Testament is an angry, wrathful, vengeful, vengeful, and unmerciful God. And we'll examine this question according to the following outline. One, the call of God, looking at verses 9 and 10. The conflict of dissonance, verses 11 through 13. And then the consequences of sin, verses 14 through 19. I do apologize for the misspelling of dissonance up there. I just now see that. It has two S's and not one S, so I do apologize for that. Uh, Would you pray for me as we move on? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the goodness of your name. And thank you, God, that you revealed yourself clearly through your scriptures. You've revealed yourself, Lord, um, in creation, and ultimately you revealed yourself through your son, Jesus. So it's to him that we look to now. Jesus, I ask that you would hide me behind your cross so your people would see you and not me. Pray, God, that you would allow the little I have to be made much in the great care um, of your presence and in your provision. We thank you, God, that you have a timely word for each and every one of, of us this morning. And I pray, God, that you would allow us to have ears to hear and have hearts to obey and have a will to persevere. And thus says the Lord, we do love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I must ask you, especially as we begin this Thanksgiving break and we start to binge watch some of our favorite movies, maybe movies that we've seen or movies that we look forward to seeing. What's your favorite movie series? You know, one of my favorite movie series is Liam Neeson's Taken. Have anybody seen this movie before? (sighs) Some people. Okay. All right. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. And my favorite scene from this movie is when his daughter is kidnapped for the first time. Now, yes, there's like taking one, two, and three. So it's like, how many times can you kidnap a person? I don't know. You have to watch it and find out. But in the first movie, in, in taking one, 
One of my favorite scenes is when Liam Nielsen uh, utters these iconic yet stoic words into the ears of his abductors. He says this, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. I don't have money. He says, but what I do have are a particular set of skills, skills that I've acquired over a very long career and skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you if you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if but if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and for because of the kids in here, I will destroy you, is what he says. You know, within Genesis 3, 9 through 21, we witness God's declaration of war on the kingdom of darkness and all those who seek to challenge his rule and authority and reign as a sovereign king of the universe. This is not just God making words. This is God declaring war. Look with me at verses 9 through 11 to identify his first declaration, the call of God. It says, so the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you from the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Notice with me that despite our sin, God takes the first step towards saving and pursuing sinners. As mentioned last week, this question was not a question of ignorance, but it was a one, it was a question of inquest or self-evaluation. This is not a question of location, because obviously when he spoke the words, Adam heard him, but it was one of proximity. It was not a question of destination, but it was one of distance. And the answer to God's question is obvious and it is clear that Adam is not where God had left him. Adam is now in sin. It's a good reminder for us, even as we look at this passage, to be reminded that God is the first and only victim within the Bible. We have willfully turned our backs on him through our disobedience But catch this, he has never turned his backs on us. Have you ever thought about God in the Bible this way? God as being the victim and us as being the predators, the perpetrators. Have you ever thought of God as being the innocent one and us as being the guilty ones? Have you ever thought of God as being the solution and us as being the problem? If you have, then I know that when you read this verse in Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, it means something to you. Listen to the words of Lamentations. It says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Look at verse 10 with me to see how God responds. Adam responds to God's call. Adam says these words. He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now notice the irony here. Notice the irony here with me. The the one who had initiated peace and harmony within the world The one who had created both, as we talked about, realms and rulers, created day and night, created the stars and everything beyond them. The one who had orchestrated the great world that we see and experience every day now has become the one by whom we withdraw from and flee from. You know, it's kind of (laughs) like... parenting a teenager. <laughs> you know, a lot of times I didn't wish I had read a couple more books on parenting teenagers, but it's wonderful. It is really great. I love it. But one day you're your child's hero. You 
are the best thing to them. You are better than sliced bread. They love to snuggle with you and cuddle with you and read stories with you and actually be seen with you, right? Like, it's kind of cool to be seen with mom and dad. But then one day, all of a sudden, mom and dad, why don't y'all just drop me off like at the corner instead of at the front door? (laughs) Mom and dad, why don't you, uh, my friends are coming. Don't you got somewhere you got to go? Don't you need to take mom on a date? I'm like, yeah, I need to take mom on a date. What that got to do with you, you know? It's kind of like you go from this aspect of this great intimacy and then kind of this wanting for independence, right? This wanting of stretching your wings. And listen, I'm not faulting anyone because I've done it. I'm sure you have done it as well as we as a part of growing up. But it is a little shocking, a little painful, if you will, even on the parent's side. You see, Adam and Eve had been covered by the righteousness of God. Adam and Eve had been covered by the righteousness of God, but now Adam and Eve are now seeking to cover their sins by hiding from God. Look how the tables have turned. God was so good to them that they didn't even realize that he was their covering. They didn't even realize that he was their covering until they realized in their sin that they were exposed. They were naked, if you will. So here's the big question for today. How will God respond? How will God respond to their rebellion? How will God respond to their disobedience? How will God respond to their sin? Look with me in three specific ways, actually four specific ways that God responds. He pursues Adam. He calls out to Adam. He questions Adam, and then he provides for Adam. These are the three ways in which God responds to the sin. This is the way in which God responds to the rebellion of Adam. He pursues Adam by calling out to him. And, and, and actually going into his presence. He enters into Adam's problem without Adam even asking him to do it. He calls out to Adam by asking him the question, where are you? He questions Adam further about, did he eat from the tree that I told you not to? And then finally he provides for Adam. Notice with me that although God is the victim within a narrative, he doesn't victimize us. Let me say that again, that although God is the victim, although God is the one who has been betrayed, although God is the one who's been forsaken, he doesn't victimize us. Pastor that I like to follow out in Brooklyn, New York, Rich Villadas, pastor of New Life Fellowship, he wrote this, tweeted this earlier this week. He says, in a world torn by rage and anxiety, One of the greatest gifts followers of Jesus are called to offer is calm and curious presence. Not a presence removed from this reality, but a presence that refuses to be shaped by reactivity. (laughs) I think that guy kind of gives a a new meaning to Ephesians 4.26 that says it this way, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I love this because it's a good reminder for us that God provides for our needs despite his own pain, despite his own suffering, and despite his own betrayal. How does God respond this way? Oh, excuse me. Why does God respond this way? I think Dane Ortland says it rightly in his book, Gentle uh, Lowly. He says these words. This is the one whose deepest heart is more than anything else, gentle and lowly. Thomas Godwin is saying that this high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and mumbled sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. You hear what Dane Ortland says? He says, what Jesus loves to do is to reach out to sinners. He loves to reach out to rebels. He loves to reach out to those who have turned their backs 
on him. So let me ask you, how do you respond? How do you respond when, to someone when they have wronged you? How do you respond to someone who's caused you intentional pain, sorrow, or maybe even discomfort? How do you respond to those who know how to push your buttons and yet they still choose to push them? (laughs) Some of us need to think about that because we're about to go home for Thanksgiving this week. Have you ever considered this? Have you ever thought about this? That does your response to the injustices within your life mimic the character of our God? Or do we use anger as an opportunity to evoke our own righteousness apart from God? For you personally, I'm not asking your children, I'm not asking your spouse. For you personally, is revenge more important than reconciliation? You see, this is important because as my old pastor used to say, You can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences of your sin. Think of it this way. Two kids fighting, arguing over a toy. One kid gets mad and picks up a toy and launches it at his sibling's head and hits him or her in the perfect spot. All of a sudden, blood is gushing everywhere. And now your quiet and serene afternoon that you planned now is succumbed by the need to go to the ER. (laughs) You see, in that moment, right, you can choose your sin. You can choose how you're going to respond to confrontation, right? That sibling, unfortunately, decided to grab a toy and handle it their own way. But once that toy goes in your hand and once you launches it, and throw it at someone, after you let it go, the consequences are unknown. (laughs) They're unknown. We don't know if it's going to hit. We don't know if it's going to miss. We don't know if it's going to hurt, put a bruise or scar. The question of stitches or no stitches, all that stuff is is in the air. We don't, as soon as you let that go, as soon as that child lets that toy go, Everything else is left up to happenstance. So you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences of your sin. It's a good lesson for us this morning. Love what Mason Cooley says about this. It's a couple of verses about revenge. It says, revenge is sweet, but not nourishing. Isn't that true? Revenge is sweet, but it's, it's, it's not nourishing. It's empty calories, right? Dick, Dick Army says it this way. You, can get, you cannot get ahead while you are trying to get even, right? You can't get ahead while you're trying to get even. Isaac Barrow says it this way. It is commonly said that revenge is sweet, but to a calm and considerate mind, Patience, excuse me, to a calm and considerate mind, patience and forgiveness are sweeter. Finally, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. actually says these words as well. He says, man must evolve for all conflict a a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of which, or the foundation of such a method is love. It's love. So so why should revenge be avoided? Why should we be careful not to take matters into our own hands? But because to forsake the temptation to seek revenge is to exemplify the character of our God, especially when you've been wronged. 
listen to me, to forsake the temptation to seek revenge is to exemplify the character of our God, especially when you've been wronged. What's more? Do you remember how all this happened? It happened through two of Satan's favorite weapons, deceit and deception. Do you remember Satan's strategy of how we even got in this situation? Right? He couldn't deny God's goodness, so he takes it upon himself to question God's character by intentionally planting seeds of doubt into Eve's mind. Remember what he said last week in verse 1? He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see, the reason why we're supposed to, and and God calls us to forsake revenge is one, yes, because it exemplifies him. It mimics him and his character. But secondly, also, we have to come to the reality that we have a, a person, we have an enemy who desires to deceive us. We have an enemy that allows us to be, that, that, that can easily cause deceit and deception to enter into our minds that will then cause us going out fighting fights and fighting wars like vigilantes and not as sons and daughters of the Most High God. So who's to blame for all this? Look with me in verses 12 through 13 to consider God's second declaration, the conflict of dissonance, verses 11 through 13. He asks, God that being, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it is a serpent. He deceived me and I ate. You know, in the 1970s, there was a guy by the name of Flip Wilson. He was an African-American comedian and host of the Flip, the Flip Wilson show. Anybody know that show? Yeah. My jolly elders remember that show. And he iconicized the the infamous phrase, the devil made me do it. And it was a funny way of accounting for one's bad decision that if he did something wrong or if he got caught doing something wrong, he would, in a very humorous way, look at it and say, the devil made me do it. And although this is a half-truth, ironically, We, too, are often tempted to say the same thing. Chalking up our faults, our fears, our flaws, our failures, and even our frustrations to the power of the devil's temptations. And this natural impulse to blame the devil for our sins goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Eve, after Being blamed by Adam, blamed the serpent for her sin. In verse 13, she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice with me the ramifications of sin here. Verse 7, we seek to cover ourselves apart from God. First, we seek to cover ourselves apart from God. Next, we ignore God's calling. Then we hide from God's presence. And then in verses 12 through 13, we see we blame God and others for our transgressions. We blame God and others for our transgressions. It's a good reminder for us this morning that God has called us. He commands us. He invites us to take responsibility for our own grievances against him. There's nothing like in that moment of seeing your children fight or quarrel for your children to come to you and say, yeah, dad, I did it. I I did it. Right? There's nothing like it. I mean, as parents, we long for that moment, right? For our children to be honest with us, to own what they've done, to trust us that we won't punish them. Maybe a little, but not a lot. Not unto death, I'll say that, by God's grace. Listen to the words of Isaiah 1, verses 16 through 19. In God's invitation to us to take ownership of our grievances, he says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, 
I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash and cleanse yourself. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do right. Seek justice and correct the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Listen to, listen to the invitation that God gives here. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. You see the invitation that God gives us in Isaiah 1? He's saying, listen, let, let us reason together. Think through this clearly. If you would just own and admit your faults, if you would just not try to blame other people or other things, if you would take ownership in the situation, I have the remedy to give you cleansing. Have a way to take what is marred and make it perfect through the blood of Christ. I hope you guys see the blame game here in verses 12 through 13, right? Adam essentially blames God for his sin, right? He hides from God's presence. He ignores God's questions. And then he questioned God's motive. Did you check out what he said in verse 12? He said, the woman that you gave me, right? God, the, the person you gave me calls me to deceive, be deceived, right? This is kind of a an inadvertent way for Adam to actually blame God. Well, God, if you wouldn't have given me this woman, <laughs> God, if you wouldn't have given me this woman, then, then I wouldn't have been deceived. Notice Eve blaming the serpent for her sin. She didn't say, I sinned. She says, yes, he deceived me, and I ate, verse 13. It's a good reminder for us that in his sovereign goodness, God hasn't called us to clean up our own mess, amen? God hasn't called us to clean up our own mess. Rather, he's called us to admit that we're dirty, that we are needy. One of my favorite books, Unlimited Grace, here, um, Brian Chappell is such a great writer, um, I love pretty much everything that he writes, but he talks about he talks about the fact on page 26 of how, how unholy people can't make themselves acceptable to a holy God. And he does this, he gives a great illustration of saying that trying to make yourself holy before God is like trying to clean a white shirt with dirty hands. I don't, care if, I don't care what you try to do. No one can clean a white shirt with dirty hands. Even being around the white shirt will cause it to be dirty. Just standing over it, thinking how you're going to clean it will cause it to be, be dirty. Even if your, finger, if your fingernail or your, your fingernail touches that white shirt, it's, it's going to be marred. I love that imagery because it helps us to see the need that we have. A lot of us in our own lives, we try to exert righteousness in our lives. And the more we try, guess what? The dirtier, messier it gets. The more we try to do, the harder the problem seems to, be, to become. And a part of the invitation that God invites us to it's to forsake us trying to do anything and look to God and say, God, my hands are dirty and only you can make them clean. Only you have the solution to my sin problem. Look with me in verses 14 through 19 to consider the third declaration here, the consequences of sin. It reads as follows. It says, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. 
You will move on your belly and eat dust of the ground uh, all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. He said to Adam, because you have listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. You, you, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. Notice the irony here, especially with the serpent. The most beautiful, the most cunning, the most beautiful of all creatures is now subjected into humility by being forced to crawl on its belly. The serpent actually has two curses put upon it. Notice the first curse. The first curse is that the is a physical curse that the serpent is called to crawl on his belly for the rest of his life. Then it says, verse 14 says, And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat the dust of the dust all the days of your life. Notice with me as we talk about the goodness of God, even in his wrath, even in, um, even in his punishment. Notice with me that God does not question the serpent. He only questions Adam and Eve. He doesn't ask the serpent any questions. He just pronounced judgment upon him. And the first one is a physical punishment. You will crawl on your belly. Well, what does this mean for the snake to crawl on his belly? Do snakes once have legs? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. You know, there's a Greek word called tetrapodophis, um, and it is actually a word that is synonymous to archaeologists finding pictures of this. This is actually a picture of an ancient snake that you see has what we see as legs or some type of lower extremities next to his body. So this pronouncement is not just a pronouncement that God has done in some magical way. This is a pronouncement that actually history records and actually can verify that at one point in time, snakes indeed had some type of lower extremities as well as upper extremities as well. So not only does he curse the serpent physically, next he curses the serpent spiritually. And he says, you will have continual enmity between the woman's seed and his seed. Verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, listen, Pastor Nick is going to talk about this much more in detail next week. So I'm not going to steal his thunder as he really dives into this verse of verse 15. But. One of the most beautiful things about verse 15 is that this is what theologians call um, the proto-evangelium. It is the first gospel. It is the first proclamation of hope that God gives us that he will bring a seed of a woman to, to give Satan a fatal blow. And he says that that seed will be struck by Satan. Satan will strike his heel, but that seed will strike Satan's head. And I don't know about you, if I had a choice between being hit on the heel or being hit on the head, I would choose heel 99, well, 100% of the time, not even 99.9% of the time. 100% of the time, I will choose the heel. Thirdly, notice what he does. He punishes the woman by intensifying her labor pains. Remember the question that we're trying to ask ourselves is, is God good? Is he kind? Is he gracious? Notice that unlike the serpent, Eve is not cursed. But she is punished in a sense. She is, her functional relationships are changed. And there are two Penalties that are imposed that, will, that strikes at the heart of woman's unique role in life. 
Here are, the two, here are the two things. One, Eve will no longer have a baby without the painful reminder during childbirth. That he says, notice what he says here. He doesn't say, I will originate pain in childbirth. Notice what he says, I will intensify pain. I will intensify it. So now the, the woman will have a painful reminder during childbirth of her birthing sin into the world through her disobedience. But then also notice the second thing, that her relationship with her husband will be, will not be without conflict. That there will be a contentious relationship that will happen between the woman and the man. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean, right? What does it mean here when God says your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you? And why is this important? Now, before I tell you what it is, let me tell you what it's not. This, 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 this aspect of your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It doesn't mean that Adam is now the ruler over Eve. That's not what he's talking about. And it doesn't mean that now Eve is now the servant of Adam. But what it does mean is that Adam and Eve will now face struggles in their relationship. It means that sin has now turned the once harmonious system of God-ordained roles into a distasteful struggle of selfishness and self-centeredness that will occur between their relationship. In other words, it means that lifelong companions, husband and wives, will forever need God's help in getting along. I love what Ecclesiastes 4.12 says about this. It says, a cord of three strands is not easily or quickly broken. And this is the beauty of what we call marriage. This is what we, beauty of what we call in, in marriage is that marriage is not between a man and a woman. Marriage is between a man, a woman, and their God. Where they go before God and they make vows to one another and they make vows to God and ask God to be the adhesive, to be the glue, to be the, 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 the thing, the, mag, the magnetism that keeps them together despite the conflict and relational dysfunction that can happen between male and female relationships, especially husband and wife relationships. Listen to me, if you are having marital issues, I definitely invite you to come talk to me and Pastor Nick, but even before you do that, I invite you more importantly to let God come in. Invite God into that relationship. To acknowledge him as being that third strand, that third rope, acknowledging that when we made covenantal vows to one another as husband and wife, it wasn't just me and you standing in front of a group of people. It was me, you, and God making vows to one another that God can be and he is the adhesive that allows marriages to flourish and allows husbands to adore and to serve their wives and allow wives to um, love and, and respect their husbands. God is the adhesive. He is the solution. But even with God there, We still have to fight for this reality. So your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So what does this look like? Or what does this mean? It means two things. One, Eve will continue to struggle with Satan's temptation to lord her authority over her husband. It means that God, when, when Adam, when, when Eve was deceived in that garden by the serpent and she was convinced by the, the, the enemy to believe that Adam really didn't know what he was doing, God really didn't know what he was talking about, so therefore I have to be in control, I have to assume authority, I have to make choices, that will be a constant struggle in marital relationships, that you will try to lord your authority over your husband. 
And, and yes, even for men, men will continue to struggle with having a propensity towards passivity. Right? Adam was there, but Adam said nothing. He did nothing. He allowed it to happen. He saw the serpent interacting with his wife, and he did not interject at all. And this is the fight for men. It's also another fight that we have, not just passivity, but it's also of misogynistic tendencies, right? If you're not going to listen to you, I'm going to make you listen to me. I'm going to force you to know that I'm the man of the house. And both extremes are wrong and dishonoring to God, our king. Jesus, God always has a better way. I just want to provide some pastoral wisdom here because I know that this is probably hitting some places close to home. I want, Mary, I want you to hear me, especially married couples in the, in the crowd. I want you to hear me that you need to learn to trust God to sanctify and to change your spouse. Do you hear me? You need to learn to trust God to sanctify and change your spouse. Women, if you are married to a godly man, he will always submit to his godly king. You don't have to be his mother and berate him and remind him over and over again. If you truly have a godly man leading your home, trust that the God that he serves and the God that he loves can get through the thick skull head of your husband. I include myself in that. Despite our arrogance and despite our stubbornness, God, if God is my king, I am his son. So bring, your, bring those things to the Lord and allow God to change and to sanctify your husband's. Men, a godly woman will love to submit to godliness. They're attracted to it. They love kindness. They, they want to see you as an image of, of Jesus in their home. You know, when I was dating my wife, I thought that she was really attracted to me. You know, my good looks and all. You know, I don't want to talk about myself too much. But, you know, I was playing football and really fit and doing all this great stuff on campus and doing all this wonderful stuff, leading campus ministries and outreaches and speaking on campus and doing all this great stuff. And one day God showed me really quickly that, listen, she's not attracted to you. She's attracted to me. <laughs> she sees me in you, and that's what attracts her to you. Man, if you are married to a godly woman, that's what she wants. She desires to see Jesus in you. She desires to see you being the servant-hearted leader that, that he has created you to be, to, to, to take away, to, 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 to lay down your preferences and your privileges and, and even your authority at times to love and care and see your wife for the daughter that he has called her and, and has loved her to be. That's what she desires. Not to you to be some macho man superhero who swoops in and saves the day anytime she has a problem to fix toilets and countertops and everything like that. Yes, that's good. Don't get me wrong. I can't do that. So don't call me if you want to do that. Have that happen. But there are a lot of men who are really good at that stuff. And amen to that. What our marriages need is to exemplify Jesus to exemplify his characteristics, to exemplify his kindness, his goodness. So what's the solution? Listen, let, let me just say this as, before I move on. There's a difference between subjection and submission, right? In, in this passage, God is not calling woman, uh, women, or excuse me, Eve, to be subjected to Adam, Subjection is being forced to submit to the leadership of another. We see this in the realities of a lot of world religions where women are called to submit to men by covering up their bodies. And they don't just submit to men, their husbands, they submit to every single man they meet where they cannot allow their bodies to be seen 
because it may be a temptation, maybe a distraction. It may cause them to lose their way with their God. Christian women, hear me. We are not calling you to subjection. We are not calling you to submit to the leadership of every single man in the world. That is ridiculous. What God does call us to is to submission. Willingly allowing yourself to be led by another. And this is the beauty of this. This is the beauty of this, is that as women, you get to choose whom you submit to. Single ladies, be careful of who you submit yourself to. Make sure they love Jesus, that he's not just a priority, he is the priority. Because listen, there are going to be times in your relationship where you won't be able to reach him, but Jesus will be able to speak to his son's heart and help him to overcome the sins that so easily ensnare us. So what do we learn to learn about the character and nature of God as a result of his actions towards Adam and Eve? We learn this, that God's wrath and his mercy should never be detached from one another. They should never be detached from one another. I love what Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology about this. He says, if God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character, then it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. God's wrath directed against sin is thereby closely related to God's holiness and his justice. God's wrath may be defined as follows. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Look with me at verses 20 through 21 to witness the connection between God's wrath and mercy. It says, Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. You see, despite their sin, God still provided for humanity's needs, and he graciously provided them with something superior to even than what Adam and Eve could provide for themselves, namely fig leaves. It's just a beautiful reminder, even of the New Testament story, the, the parable of the prodigal son, that although the prodigal son had sinned, and although though the prodigal sin, son said, hey, God, give me my inheritance, even though you have not died. Although he went out and, and squandered all of his father's fortunes on the lustful desires of this world, yet his father provided so much more when he came back home. Do you remember the picture of him coming back home? That his father was on the porch looking for him day and night, day after day, waiting for his son to come home. And when he saw him from afar, when he saw him from miles away, he, his heart grew, um, grew glad and he got enough energy in himself that he did something that was so uncommon in the day. It almost is laughable when Jesus shared the story at that time. He ran to his son. In the ancient Near East Eastern context, cultural context, running, especially for a man, was seen as being something that no man did in his right mind. But this man has so much love, so much desire for his son that he cannot wait for his son to come to him. He has the audacity to run to his son. And he puts rings on his fingers. He puts robes on his back. He has a big party for his son. The state of his son coming back is so much better than when he first left. Why is that? Well, it's because of what we say here often. Our identity precedes our function, right? What the son did was egregious and wrong, but it didn't change the father's love for the son. It was wrong, it was egregious, and it needed to be accounted for. And it, probably, it was accounted for in some way, but in that moment, the fact that the father had solved the son and the fact that he saw his son coming back home to him overwhelmed his father, that old man's heart with so much joy that he couldn't help himself but to run to his, to his son and welcome him home. 
There's a twofold significance that we need to leave here with applicationally. Number one, God will never allow our sins to overshadow his unconditional love for us. God will never allow our sins to overshadow his unconditional love for us. And number two, God will provide for the sins of humanity through a perfect sacrifice. We see that specifically in verse 21, where the Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He said, listen, I know those fig trees that y'all got. Y'all think that's working. That's really not working that well. Let me give you something that's actually going to work. And God gets skin from an animal that actually is a foreshadowing of the, the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament that's used by the nation of Israel for the purification of their sins. But ultimately, it extends way beyond that because it's, it extends to a cross on Golgotha. Well, the Son of Man, full of glory and full of righteousness, the perfect, flawless Son of God is stretched wide on the cross of human sin, of of, of the cross of of a Roman cross, in order that all of us might find forgiveness and all of us might find our way home. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. Thank you, God, that you are a good God and king in every way. Thank you, God, that you pursue us and love us. And although you were the victim, you never seek to victimize us. What a gracious and good God you are. Pray that we will live into this reality, not just now, but forevermore, that even as we partake of this meal of communion, that our hearts will grow even more in gratitude to you the author and finisher of our faith. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, Visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.